0: You pray with me for a moment. Our Father, we, even in this short little worship service, we just yearn to continue checking in with you, to continue greeting you and being reminded of your presence. We thank you, Father, for your choice of us from the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. We thank you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for redeeming us, for paying the price to redeem your elect. And we thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, for regenerating us, for enlivening our hearts and opening our blind eyes to see the face of Jesus Christ, the very essence of the glory of God. And so this morning, as we look into your word, Father, we pray that our hearts would be thrilled with the truths that are presented to us. Most of all, that our hearts would be thrilled with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship and we see a little piece of his life on earth here this morning. Lord, help us to follow your word, not only in our mind and in our heart, but in our actions to obey you in all things, so that Christ might receive the most honor. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the hymn that we sang a few minutes ago, probably not familiar to a lot of you, I heard the voice of Jesus say, and if I could just make a musical note, by the way, it's in a minor key. And in modern times, we think of minor key as kind of a sad song. That's not the case. Many great theological songs are written in a minor key because it conveys a weightiness, a heaviness to the truth. And so it did that very well. And I love that hymn because of the theologically pinpoint accuracy with which it addresses humanity's desperate need for salvation from sin. And the reason this hymn is so accurate, because it correctly identifies the initiating party, that God in the person of Christ has called to us. He reached down to us. He came down to us. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. It was Jesus who spoke first, not me. Romans 3, verse 11 says that no one seeks for God. There were no deals made between us and God. He spoke first. We were in the spiritual darkness. We needed the voice of Jesus to call us to the light. And one man who heard the voice of Jesus and was quite literally called from darkness to light is found in John chapter 9, and you can turn there in your Bibles. This is one of the most beloved stories in all of the Gospels, the story of the man born blind, And in our series in John chapters 8 and 9, we've been exploring what the hymn writers know. The fact that the greatest historic hymns of our faith, they always reflect biblical truth in richness and in detail. These truths of God found in the scriptures. And the story of the man born, born blind, it really has enlivened the hearts of so many hymn writers because of the obvious parallel between spiritual darkness and spiritual sight. The point of this story here that we're going to see today is not just the compassion of Jesus on a man with a physical disability, a man in physical darkness. The point is the compassion and grace of Jesus on a man in spiritual darkness. That's why this story is here. Now, the metaphor of blindness to speak of spiritual darkness is a very well-worn trail in Scripture. Elsewhere, Jesus accused the Pharisees of Israel of being blind leaders of blind people. He said in Matthew fifteen fourteen, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. We also see that the spiritually blind don't know that they're blind. Jesus told the disobedient church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse 17, he said, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable poor, blind, and naked. And the problem here is, is that Jesus proves that spiritual blindness actually creates spiritual arrogance. We also see that the completely spiritual blind are by definition unsaved and misled. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We also see that the false believer is exposed by his loathing of true Christians. And he's exposed as being spiritually blind. 1 John 2 verse 11 says, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And very chillingly, those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ come under the judgment of a state of permanent spiritual blindness. John 12, verse 40, Jesus himself says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That at some point, spiritual blindness becomes set in. So what is the solution to spiritual blindness, to spiritual darkness? Well, it is the one who opens blind eyes, the one who not only created light, but the one who is the light. And this story here, it's so rich, so beloved. We're going to take the next three messages to consider it, and the final three messages in our series, What the Hymn Writers Know. And so let's just kind of set the context here. Follow along with me in John chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll consider the first 12 verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground... And made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now the real crux of these 12 verses centers around the question, who did what? Who's responsible for what? How much credit does the blind man get, and how much credit does Jesus get? Now, in seeing this passage as a picture of salvation, did this man meet Jesus halfway and together? Did they form some sort of project to restore his sight? Theologians call this synergism, where God and man work together for salvation. Or did Jesus get all the credit for the work? Theologians call that monergism, a singular work. Well, as the hymn, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, implies, I'm going to assert that Jesus did it all, that he did everything. And I'm going to organize those thoughts for you in a moment. But I think it'd be good for us to lay kind of a preliminary foundation at this point. It's concrete that we've poured before, and for some of you, it is dry and set, and we're ready to build structures on it. For others of you, maybe the forms aren't there yet. Maybe the concrete is still a little bit wet. And so I want to make sure we're all on the same page with this, this has to do with the nature of the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, today we have no lack of divine healers. They're part of the massively growing Pentecostal and charismatic movements. According to one source in the last 24 months, that movement now numbers 700 million people worldwide. And of those 700 million people, 200 million of them are estimated, according to one source, quote, to believe they have witnessed or experienced divine healing. To put it in perspective, slightly over half of the American population would say that. And of course, we would agree that God is a healer, and in his sovereign will, he can do anything he wants. He can choose to miraculously heal someone. But what about the healers? What about the New Testament spiritual gift of healing? Is that still in operation? Well, the first thing we have to note is the phrase that I quoted to you, they believe that they have witnessed or experienced divine healing. What is the basis for that belief? It's something that they think they have experienced. It is purely experience-based theology. Here's a typical example. A couple of decades ago, a Baptist pastor by the name of Randy Clark had just taken a class on how to hear supernatural knowledge from God. And right then, we start to get a little suspicious already. And one of the things he learned, and there's no basis in Scripture for this at all, one of the things he learned was that you can actually experience the physical condition that somebody else is going through, and that tells you that God is about to do something. And so, because he had just learned this, obviously he's going to experience it, right? And so during the worship service, and shortly after he took that class, all of a sudden he had a sharp pain in his left eye. And so he asked his congregation, does anybody have something wrong with your left eye? And a woman came forward according to one source, quote, to reportedly be healed of tunnel vision, which, by the way, is not a painful condition, but they just went over that. And so he began to experiment, and Randy Clark began to try to heal things like wrist pain and limps and back pain. And since then, Randy Clark has become famous, extremely famous in charismatic circles, not only holding healing revivals for tens of thousands of people, but now... He's claimed to impart the gift of healing as well to others. He is typical of modern day so called healers that if you will just have enough faith in God, then you will be delivered from your illness or your malady. One influential follower of Randy Clark said, quote, Randy empowers ordinary believers to a supernatural life. In case you didn't catch it, that is a claim to deity. Clark was instrumental in the so-called Toronto Blessing of the 1990s. Huge crowds of people experienced things like electric waves, supposedly from the Spirit of God, emotional ecstasy, and and what makes the Toronto Blessing famous, or infamous rather, is the uncontrollable laughter that would happen. No precedent in Scripture for this whatsoever. And that birthed, of course, the Vineyard Church movement, probably the single most damaging pseudo-Christian movement in the history of the church. But as you read accounts of healers and healing ministries, there's, there's a definite element missing to this. What's missing is any similarity whatsoever to the ministry of Jesus Christ. The so-called modern signs and wonders movement has subtly created a shift away from the biblical gospel, which was always the whole point of the healing ministry of Jesus, and now it's gone to a, a self-focused pseudo-faith in which now Jesus exists for my purposes. That he is here just to be a divine healer, and that's it. And so given the fact that you cannot base spiritual truth on experience, but you must base it on the revealed word of God, what was the healing ministry of Jesus like? What what was it about? Now the time of Christ showed us the greatest explosion of miraculous activity and healing in history. There's nothing close before, nothing close after it. The Son of God being present on earth just was this incredible catalyst that we've never really seen. Jesus had two broad purposes for his healing ministry. And we might break it down further, but I just want to give you these two for the basic idea. First of all, the Gospels record him as having great and tender compassion on hurting people who are experiencing really the ravages of the consequences of sin. Matthew chapter 9 records Jesus as having compassion because the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke chapter 7 records Jesus having compassion on a widow whose only son had just died. And so there is a very human sense of compassion. So we might say that's the human reason for his divine healing. But the primary purpose, what we might call the divine reason is that the miracles that Jesus performed displayed his power as the Son of God, as God himself. As a matter of fact, all of the signs recorded in John's gospel are for that singular purpose. This is the purpose statement of John's gospel. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these, meaning the ones recorded in the Gospel of John, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And some would say, well, you still need miracles to know that Jesus is the Son of God. No, you don't. You pick up your Bible and read about it. That's why we have the Gospels. And so just to make sure that you aren't taken in by charlatans, I want to give you just very briefly ten elements of the healing ministry of Jesus. I want this concrete in your heart to be firm and solid. Ten elements of the healing ministry of Jesus. First of all, Jesus healed with or without faith of the person being healed. He healed with or without faith. Mark chapter nine, verse twenty four. A man who has a son in who's demon possessed says, I need you to help my son, but I don't have any faith. And Jesus healed him anyway. Jesus raised dead people. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son. How much faith do they have? Not much. The lame man healed at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5, he didn't know who Jesus even was until later. Jesus healed multitudes and multitudes of people who had no faith whatsoever. So it wasn't dependent on faith. There's a second element. Jesus healed systemic organic disease. He healed systemic organic disease. Crippled legs, withered hands, osteoporosis in Luke chapter 13, complete blindness, total deafness, leprosy. This isn't some guy saying, oh, you have wrist pain, or I'm going to make your sore back better, or your limp seems to be a little bit better. No, he healed in the big leagues. Here's the third element. Jesus healed every single person who came to him and asked. Every single one. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. No gimmicks, no stages, no security, keeping back the harder cases. Here's a fourth element. Jesus healed completely and permanently. There was never a need to do a redo. If you just Google get healed again, you'll find charismatic teachers saying that sometimes your faith was good enough for a partial healing, but you need to come back for a booster shot, so to speak. Jesus never had to do that. Jesus healed, here's number five, with a word or a touch. He healed with a word or a touch. He demonstrated total power, total control over every situation. In fact, I think it's interesting. John MacArthur makes an interesting point that when Jesus healed, he never showed any signs of stress whatsoever. The only times that Jesus was really intense and almost anxious from a human standpoint was when he was in prayer. In prayer was when he was intense and focused on the Lord. Healing people, no big deal. He's God. Here's the sixth element. Jesus healed with no sign of showmanship. There was no flashiness. There was no sense of being on stage. He just healed. In fact, many times he said, don't tell people because it wasn't time yet. His healings weren't held only for prearranged ticket holders at crusades where you had to get into someplace and get trapped. He just healed. Here's the seventh element. Jesus never took money for his healings. He never took money. You know, I, I, I'm i sure this is just a coincidence, but it's amazing to me how consistently modern-day so-called healers become enormously wealthy on the backs of the people they supposedly healed. I, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. I'm sure that's not anything we could point at. Here's an eighth element. Jesus did the ultimate healing. He raised the dead. There's three recorded instances. There's nine in all of Scripture. Three of them are Jesus himself raising the dead, doesn't mean there weren't many more. Look, if there really is a modern-day healer in the style of Jesus, in the style of the apostles, just raise somebody from the dead, and not in some unrecorded little African village that nobody on the planet has ever actually been to. That's what you'll always see. Here's a ninth element. Jesus healed to such a degree that he temporarily eradicated disease in Galilee eradicated disease. Matthew 4 verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and listen to this, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You know what he was doing? He was giving a little demonstration of what living in the kingdom under King Jesus is going to be like. No more disease, no more crying, no more mourning. Now, listen, if I stated earlier, as I stated earlier, if 200 million people have actually seen verifiable healing of organic disease, don't you think that would have made the news? Don't you think that would be something worth noting? But it hasn't. And finally, the tenth element, Jesus' healings, were unquestionable. They were unquestionable. Do you know that even the people who hated him didn't question his miracles? Even his enemies didn't question them. They just hated the fact that he was getting all the attention. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John eleven forty seven and 48 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Yes, that's the point. They never denied his miracles. They were unquestionable. Even charismatic news reporters use phrases like, quote, reportedly healed, unquote, and claims to be healed, unquote. They're very, very careful about what they claim because everything is anecdotal and you just have to take the word of somebody. There's never any actual evidence. So now you can safely understand that the healing ministry of the New Testament in general and the healing ministry of Jesus Christ in particular is completely unique. It's completely unique. It served the specific purpose of attesting to the identity of Jesus Christ, of confirming the truth of the gospel. It's one thing for him to say, I am the Son of God, it's the it's another thing for him to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to heal thousands and thousands of sick people. That gets attention. And now we can examine the fact that salvation is a monergistic, a one work from God alone, a singular work of God, as embodied by the ministry of Jesus, that God is the initiator. He's the worker of salvation, that when you were saved, you could then say, I heard the voice of Jesus say, and only when he decided. And so to help us do that this morning, I want to review six really important theological terms that this text very clearly demonstrates. They're simple terms. Many of you know them. But they're foundational to our understanding that God initiates the work of saving from sin. And so this is, again, in the name of making sure that the concrete is set very firmly for all of you. Again, these are terms you know, but I want want you to understand that these are not things that theologians just sat around and made up. They read them in the Gospels and said, this is the truth, and they simply assigned a label to it. So the first theological term to, to review, you're probably very familiar with this, election. Election. Now, we have to set up our, our scene here. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It's sometime after the Feast of Booths, after the Feast of Tabernacles. He's near the temple. And this is an important location because the temple is where beggars would come because there's more people there and they're in a charitable mood. They've just been worshiping God and so maybe they're in the mood to, to do something nice. We know from verse 8 that the blind man is a beggar. He's living this hand to mouth existence. He is a truly poor person. Now, it's important to understand that physical blindness in Jesus' day was extremely common. The blind person was basically limited to becoming a beggar or relying on family members to completely take care of him. There was no cure, there was no treatment whatsoever. But worse than that, Blindness was generally considered to be a sign of God's displeasure. That he was angry with you. The blind were sometimes rejected by their family. They were ostracized by the community, which is very, very ironic because the law of God prohibited the mistreatment of a blind person. Deuteronomy 27, verse 18, Leviticus 19, verse 14, prohibited cruelty toward the blind. But for, What did he do? Did he rebel against his mother in the womb? How do you blame him? And so that brings us to the question, who did what? Who is responsible here? And so, based on the fact that there's a lack of understanding of, of who's responsible for what, the disciples asked this question about who sinned in verse 2. Who sinned? Now, blindness at birth it was thought now to be caused by infection either before or even during the birthing process. It's also thought that trachoma, a contagious bacterial infection of the eye, a very common cause of blindness today, was the prevalent reason for blindness in the ancient world. There were no effective treatments to those who were blind. It was always a life sentence of darkness. And it's interesting, if you think about the ancient Near East, that was an agrarian society, even deafness, even though that was a, a horrible way to live also, A deaf person could work with animals, they could could farm, they could do things. A blind person was completely helpless. And so now the disciples asked Jesus a a theological question. In verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is right in line with the view of almost all the rabbis in Jesus' day, that somebody had to have sinned, that if you're afflicted with something that bad, somebody has to be blamed certainly is possible for a baby to be born with defects because of the sinful behavior of the parents, uh, excessive drug or alcohol use, and so forth. But that's just a natural consequence of negative behavior. This is talking about God judging a little baby because of something the parents did. And so, obviously, there's a conundrum here. The disciples and nobody would think that that baby did anything, and so it must be the parents. Jesus had previously acknowledged that suffering might be a direct result of sin. Jesus told the man he had just healed in John chapter 5, verse 14, he said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. But here Jesus is saying that's not an invariable fact. That's not always the case. Now we can't let verse 1 just stand merely as kind of a trivial introduction to the story. As he passed by, he saw a man Blind from birth. This isn't just something to keep the narrative going. There were lots and lots of blind people in Israel. But as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This little statement is the tip of the iceberg. Jesus never did anything that wasn't precisely according to his sovereign plan the sovereign plan of his father. Every single move in his ministry was calculated. It was planned. It was ordained. And Jesus walking by this man born blind wasn't a coincidence. He didn't walk by and look and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Hey, this would fit really well into John's Gospel, chapter 9. I think we should do something here. This was the plan. This was precisely his plan. He chose this particular blind man. Why? I don't know. God is never obligated to give us the reasons for his choice, but it was his divine prerogative to make that choice. And so, faithful to the purpose of his healing ministry, Jesus has singled out this man. It was known to him by his Father in heaven. Why did he single him out? Well, I think a good overarching theological reason is to understand that one of the things that is associated with Messiah is the restoring of sight to the blind. Listen to these messianic passages from from isaiah isaiah 29 verse 18 in that day the day when messiah comes the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see another messianic passage isaiah 35 verse 5 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened another messianic passage isaiah 42 verse 7 to open the eyes that are blind to bring the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness And so Jesus is giving this clear illustration of what a Messiah would do. He's going to demonstrate his position, his identity as Messiah, the son of the living God, by choosing this one man, someone who is both physically and spiritually blind. And he'll heal both conditions. He's merely ministering to the one who has been chosen. Chosen when, according to Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How did Jesus know this man had been born blind? Because he's sovereign God and he knew him. He knew his name. He knew everything about him. He knew the moment he was born. He knew his parents' names. He knew his grandparents' names. He knew exactly what town he was from. He knew exactly what this life had been like for this man. He knew exactly what time of the day he was going to meet this man, what he was going to do, how the man was going to respond. He knew everything about this time. And for the disciples, it looks like Jesus is just walking by and going, oh, look, there's a blind guy. This has been planned. This has been planned. The point of the doctrine of election is not to be right. is not to be theological snobs. The point of the doctrine of election is that this is what the Bible teaches as the fundamental understanding in answering the question, who did what? God is the one who ordains salvation. And without a proper understanding of election, you taint the worship of believers. You taint our worship. Because you have this sense of, I was a meaningful contributor to my own salvation, and that somehow I helped God just a little bit. And so for you as believers in Christ, I, I urge you and I encourage you, let the doctrine of election, the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world, let that drive your worship. Let that drive your thankfulness, your, your gratitude to the Lord. You cannot be somebody who thinks you met God halfway and worship God accurately. You can't. It's not possible. But if God elects, that must mean he's in control, total control, right? Total dominion over everything. Well, this is precisely what Jesus is going to demonstrate. And we have a second theological word for us to review to understand the initiating word of, work of God. And that is the word Sovereignty. The word sovereignty, and sometimes we throw that word around, and I I forget at times that not everybody has the same understanding. What is sovereignty? The sovereignty of God is the state of his being in complete total control of everything all the time. It's very comprehensive. The disciples wanted to know about the cause of the man's blindness, but Jesus shifted the attention away from the cause, and he goes to the purpose. And what's the purpose? That the man would be used to demonstrate the power of God. Now, Jesus knew that the judgment, or the blindness rather, wasn't a judgment on the man, wasn't a judgment on his parents. This was sovereign knowledge that only God has. How is it that anyone could know why somebody's blind? Spiritually speaking, only God can know that. But Jesus didn't just know what the reason was not, he knew what the reason was. It was to display the works of God in him. Now, just to be clear here, this wasn't somehow God cruelly blinding a little baby just to reveal his greatness. All disease, all infirmity is a result of sin, which God is sovereignly superintending and using, but God never causes sin. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says that his eyes are purer than to look on evil. But as the sovereign of all things, when the fallenness of the world, which has infection and disease and bacteria and viruses, when all that because of sin brought blindness to the life of this man, even while he was still in the womb, this was part of the mysterious divine purposes of God. And evil, Even evil is used by God to glorify himself. Greatest example we have in Scripture certainly is the ultimate evil of murdering the Son of God. Certainly an act of evil, and yet the Son of God is the means by which payment for sin is made on behalf of all who believe in him. Why? Because God is sovereign. Listen, for the Puritans, the sovereignty of God, they were obsessed with the sovereignty of God as we ought to be. Listen to what the 17th century Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen wrote on the sovereignty of God and how it fits in with salvation. He said this, The foundation of the whole of salvation is laid in a sovereign act of the will, the pleasure, the grace of the Father. And this is the order and method of all divine operations in the way and work of grace. They originally proceed all from Him, and having effected their ends, they do return, rest, and center in Him again. And let me stop right there. We might call that a a theological boomerang that salvation begins with God. It goes to us. We receive the benefit and it comes back to him. Owen continues, therefore, that Christ is made ours, that he is communicated to us, is originally, listen to these words, from the free act, the grant, and the donation of the Father. Did you ever think of your salvation as a donation from God to you? But notice something here in verse 3. Jesus said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works, plural, works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is going to do more than one thing. God is going to do more than one thing through Christ. He's going to open his physical eyes in order to demonstrate that he can open his spiritual eyes. And the next couple of weeks, as we see this man born blind, there's no other way to say this but to say, man, that guy is saved. He is absolutely utterly saved. And not only are his physical eyes open, but his spiritual eyes clearly open. The sovereignty of God in your salvation is for exactly the same purpose, that the works of God might be displayed in you. Your salvation is first and foremost a display of the sovereignty of God, giving him all the glory It's so marvelous that your salvation, your being saved from sin is a performance. It is a stunning presentation to the angels of heaven of the great sovereign wisdom of God. And I love Ephesians 3, verse 10, that through the church, that's you, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You are a stunning presentation, a show-off, for God to say, "Let me show you what sovereignty can do," because the angels they they know who you are. Man, I saw that girl when she was fifteen. She was an absolute terror, and now she opens her Bible and she loves the Lord Jesus Christ. How is that? And God gets all the glory. And so, for the God who elects and who does so with sovereignty, what does that process of salvation look like? Well, that brings us to our third theological word to review. Illumination. Illumination. Verse 4, Jesus continues, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. By the way, reading all through John in John's gospel and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation, he loves the theme of darkness and light. And we see that even in this passage here Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And you know this, by the way, that Jesus is training his disciples. He speaks to them as if they are team members. We're co-workers together to tell people of the light of the world. But he says, night is coming when no one can work. Generally for John, night is metaphorical for a time of spiritual darkness. And Jesus says it very clearly here. It's a time of spiritual darkness apart from Christ, who is the light of the world. In other words, the death of Christ is coming. That there's months now for the light of the world to be here. Little, little time for him to be on earth. That while he's on earth, he is the light of the world. But when Jesus dies and when he departs, the light is gone. They would be overtaken by darkness. John 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Now, of course, taking the whole of Scripture and and understanding the the complete redemptive plan of God, we understand that the Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost and they would again be empowered to do the work of Christ through what uh, Romans 8 calls the Spirit of Christ to fulfill what Jesus said that they were to be. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. And so for a time, though, When Jesus leaves, there's a time where the Son of God is gone, the Holy Spirit has not come, and the world is in darkness. And so the disciples are given the sense of urgency. Work now. Do the things that fulfill, that that demonstrate the light now. That God's work must be accomplished no matter how great the opposition. In verse 5, Jesus once again states he's the light of the world. This time he demonstrates it by bringing light to the life of a man in darkness. I think it's important to understand that without the spiritual illumination given by God, we can't understand him. We can't know him. You can't figure out God. No human being would ever, on his own, come to the conclusion of the gospel. They would never come to that conclusion because we would never say, logically speaking, I need God to come as a man so that he can die in my place to pay the penalty for sin that I owe to God. Nobody's ever come to that conclusion. When mankind does come to his own conclusion, what, what do we come to? We come to, yeah, I might be a sinner, but I think if I balance it out with some good stuff, I'll be okay. That's how we come to that conclusion. It's a false and a deadly belief which will not stand in the courts of holy God. Instead, we understand that 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When somebody says, God has shown me the way, but they don't mention Christ, then God has not shown you the way. Because when God opens spiritual eyes, the first person you see is Christ. And so to demonstrate that he's the giver of spiritual illumination, Jesus sets about the work of God, the work planned for him by his Father, and he does something that doesn't seem very Messiah-like at first, he, he looks down and he spits on the ground. And then he makes a little mud in his hand. Now, what, what is he doing? Well, he's going to help us review our fourth theological word that demonstrates the initiative of God in salvation. And this word would be regeneration. Regeneration. So here we have the king of kings and lord of lords making a mud ball. Seems kind of ironic to me. Now, all little boys grow up having made a mud ball with their own saliva at least once. It is in our DNA. When we're walking along in dirt and we feel a little bit of saliva in our mouth, we go, hmm, I wonder what would happen. And so, undoubtedly, Jesus is experienced at this. He and his brothers behind the house go and watch this one and seeing how big a mud ball they can make. And so, this is just Jesus doing something very, very human. He takes this little bit of mud and sticks it on these guys' eyes. And it doesn't say that he said he was going to do that. He just did it. And a lot of ink has been spilled surmising the reason Jesus used a mud ball to heal this guy. Jesus never does anything without a purpose. And he usually does things with multiple purposes. There are several purposes that I think we can reasonably assume we can deduce, but there's one purpose which clearly is stated in the text. But let me give you the ones that we can we can deduce from the text. Now, first of all, one effect of this was it kept the the focus off of methods and onto the message. In other words, Jesus healed on one occasion two blind men by touching them, matthew 9 he healed another one by putting just saliva on his eyes mark 8 so you can't just see this as a method to heal that wasn't his point point. and so so-called healers can't learn from the methods there's a second reasonable purpose it forced this man into a decision he had balls of mud on his eyeballs Just because he was blind didn't mean he didn't have any feeling in his eyes. It could still be uncomfortable for him if you've ever gotten one grain of sand in your eye. You know how horrible that is. And so it encouraged this man to believe and to obey Jesus when he said to go wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. And this is, listen, this is not unlike the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to put you in the position where you must make a choice. There's a third reasonable purpose. It demonstrated the inherent holiness of Christ, the inherent holiness of Christ. Now, saliva was thought to have healing properties, but in the Old Testament, it also conveyed ceremonial uncleanness. Leviticus 15. And so for Jesus to make a mud ball was theoretically to make himself unclean. But Jesus is holy God. He's always clean. He's always pure And everything he touches becomes clean and pure also. And so, for example, in Matthew 8, a leper knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So Jesus reached out and touched him, touched the leper, and said, Be clean, and immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And so Jesus demonstrates his inherent holiness. There's a fourth reasonable purpose for using the little mud balls. The blind man had eyes. We we know this. There is a rare birth defect in which some babies are born without eyes. But in this case, he was born with eyes. They just didn't work. There was something lacking in the mechanism of the eye, something deficient. I think this served as a little tiny small demonstration that Jesus is simply doing what God did when he made Adam: taking a lump of dirt and forming living tissue with it. Very simple demonstration. Those are all reasonable deductions we can take from the text. But there is one purpose that's directly stated. And it happens a little bit later. Look with me at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Oh, now we're getting to the crux of it. Jesus made mud to be irritable. That's why. The Pharisees and the legalists of of Israel had radically redefined the Sabbath as being all about keeping these endless, man made, meticulous rules and making a mud ball would be considered unauthorized work, the horror of it. Jesus was demonstrating who he said, who he is in three other Gospels. He said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning i made everything i rested on the first sabbath and if i want to heal a guy on the sabbath i will do as i please because i'm in charge i'm lord to say he is lord of the sabbath is a verifiable and blatant claim to deity and so to break their little rules and to make mud balls is just to thumb his nose at them and to say i will do what i want i am the lord So again, he's fulfilling the purpose of demonstrating who he is through his miracles. So using the means of this little mud ball, Jesus is going to open the darkened eyes of this blind man. He's going to regenerate his eyes, regenerate his soul, make something new where there wasn't before. This is exactly what Jesus described in John chapter 3. He calls this in salvation, being born of the Spirit, being born again. This is completely a work of God alone. It is the choice of God. It is the work of God. It is his decision. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's him Titus 3, verse 5, very familiar to you. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's all God. It was his choice. When you came to realize who Jesus is and that you must worship him and you must repent of your sin to him, the Holy Spirit had already done that work and prepared your heart. When did regeneration happen to you? Was it after you had faith in Christ and then you were made regenerate? No. We only have to look at the blind man to see that that's not the case. What did the blind man do? What what was his part? He was blind. That's it. He sat there and he was blind. That was his part. Verse 1 tells us, Jesus passed by, he saw the man, he knew the man, he knew everything about him, and it was Christ who chose him, Christ who addressed the man in words not recorded in the text. And if you ask this man what happened, his answer would be, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I couldn't even see him. I didn't even know he was there. He just called to me. Now, giving us this picture of regeneration, the giving of the ability to hear the voice of Christ, What might we expect to be the fifth theological word that we see here? Well, this is a phrase, divine calling, divine calling. We are regenerated so that we can hear something and see something. And so we hear the voice of Jesus say, and we would use the phrase divine calling. Now, verse 7, Jesus tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. A little bit of background here is helpful to us. The pool of Siloam was built by King Hezekiah in the 8th century B.C., And it was to hold the water that was channeled from his famous tunnel, which brought water from the spring of Gihon, and it went downhill just a little bit at exactly a 6% grade. It's, by the way, considered a massive feat of engineering. And it came into the city so that Jerusalem could survive a siege and have endless water. Siloam means sent, because the water is sent from the spring of Gihon. Now, there are a variety of pools that Jesus could have sent the man to in Jerusalem. But he instructed them specifically to go to the pool of Siloam, the pool of water that was sent. There are never coincidences in Scripture, ever. And it's no coincidence that what Jesus says in verse 4, that he is the one who was, what, sent by his Father, is here in this exact same passage. Now, some guy comes up to you when you're blind, and he says, hold still, and he squishes a bunch of mud on your eyeballs and says, go wash it off. that's odd to me. I, I would find that odd. But what did the man do? He was enlivened by Christ to have faith in Christ, to trust him, and he just went and he obeyed. He heard and he obeyed the voice of Christ. He obeyed the divine call. And the man's own testimony in verse 11 is, I went and washed and received my sight. Hey, can you imagine somebody stopping him on the way to the Pool of Siloam? saying, hey, what are you doing? You have mud all over your eyes. Yeah, some guy came and stuck him on my eyes and said to go wash them off, and I'm going to see again. From a human standpoint, we would say that's crazy. From a divine standpoint, that is exactly what happened to us in salvation, that we received faith from God. We received a call from him. And his eyes were opened, and the mercy shown to him perfectly demonstrates our, our final theological word to review, Conversion. Conversion. In verses 8 through 10, people are wondering if this is the same guy born blind, and we have a lot of different reactions here. His neighbors who knew him, lived close to him, said, It is him, isn't it? Others said, Yes, it is him. Others said, No, it's just somebody who looks a lot like that guy. And the man is there. He's saying, It's me. I am the man. I am the man. In verse 10, people ask him, Then how were your eyes opened? The same question will be asked by the Pharisees in verse 15. They asked him how he had received his sight. The Pharisees will ask the man's parents in verse 19. How then does he now see? And again, the Pharisees will ask the man in verse 26. How did he open your eyes? And we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. This man clearly converted, who has come to faith in Christ, a follower of Jesus. He corrects the leaders of Israel. And basically he says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not How did he open your eyes? The question is, who is a man who can open the eyes of the blind? That's the right question. In fact, this man's basically going to say to these leaders, how dumb are you if you can't figure this out? It's easy. Who else could do that except somebody sent from God? The result of election, of sovereignty, of illumination, of regeneration, of divine calling is always, always, always conversion. Every time, being changed from a child of the devil to the child of God. Changing your allegiance, changing your loyalty from your sin to your savior. Let me put it this way. There is no such thing as an elect person who does not get converted. And by the way, on the flip side, there is no such thing as somebody who wanted to be converted but is not elect. Those two don't exist. How wonderful for the Lord to give us these concepts of election and sovereignty, illumination, regeneration, divine calling, conversion, so clearly outlined here by the actions of Christ. So, how do we apply this? Well, I want to address three groups of you this morning. And I love the fact that we get to broadcast this online as well, so we can reach more people. But there are three groups that I want to talk about. The first one I might call the thrill seekers. The thrill seekers. You seek a thrill by coming as close to Jesus as you can, without actually converting. Apparently, it's a, some sort of a thrill to see how long you can test God and live through it. How long you can rebel against the Lord without incurring the judgment of God. Now, salvation is entirely an act of God. The paradox that we can't fully understand is that there is a human responsibility. In fact, in the Gospel of John, 98 times we're told, you must believe. You must believe. Listen, Jesus gave a very direct comparison for us and it's right here in the same Gospel. In John chapter 9, we've just seen the healing of a blind man. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Now, I want you to listen to the similarities of these healings because he gives us a comparison. Both miracles happened by a pool. Both miracles happened on the Sabbath. Both miracles happened in very challenging circumstances. Paralysis on one hand, blindness on the other. Both miracles had a very unusual healing method. And both of these men told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed them. But that's as far as the similarities go, and now they go in opposite directions. The paralyzed man in John 5 told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him so that he could side with them and reject Christ. The blind man told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him, and he did so as a disciple of Christ, John 9, 27, willing to be persecuted for his faith, John 9, 34, and because he believed. John 9, 38. A thrill seeker says, I'm going to come as close as I can, but I'm not going to convert. Can I encourage you? Stop being a thrill seeker. Stop saying, I need to think about salvation longer. Do you think that the blind man with the mud on his eyes made it as fast as he can to the pool of Siloam? He did. He got there as fast as he could. The second group I'd like to address I might call you the discipline seekers, the discipline seekers. Some of you are parents. You, can, you don't have to name names, but you have had kids that were just asking for it, right? For the believer in Christ, there is a form of spiritual blindness that can reoccur. Did you know that? It's not to the loss of your salvation, but it is to the loss of you, the assurance of your salvation because your life so replicates that of an unbeliever in our church you know what I get on occasion phone call or an email saying there's a member of our church I sit right across from him or right behind him and I've seen him out in the world and he's acting like an unbeliever what do I do with that? What is this form of blindness? Listen to it from 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, rather, beginning in verse 9. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now listen, here's the qualifier. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, this is the Christian whose life is now such a mess that he or she has no assurance of salvation whatsoever. You know what happens to me as a pastor sometimes? People in that situation come to me, or they come to one of our elders, and they want assurance. They want assurance. Hey, you're, you're the one that baptized me, right? Now, I, I just want to make sure, do you think I'm saved? You know what I'm going to say? No. No. You're not acting like it. Don't come for human assurance. I'm going to say, if you're acting like an unbeliever... Then you are an unbeliever. But but you baptized me, or you 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 know how I used to serve in the church. I don't know anything except maybe you faked it. And so if you, as a believer in Christ, are struggling with assurance for salvation, look at your life. What's different about it to give you that assurance? What has changed in your life to make you say, I'm I'm living as I ought? As the Apostle John told us that the one who claims to be in Christ ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. So no, don't come to a human being asking for assurance. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, but neither are we the flaunt sin and dare God to come after us. We would call those discipline seekers. And there's a th- third group, and this really should be all of us, we'll call soul seekers. Soul seekers. The believer who grasps and loves these doctrines, the doctrines of election and sovereignty, illumination, regeneration, divine calling, conversion. Listen, if you grasp those doctrines, you know what it ought to do for your evangelism? It ought to give you incredible confidence. How many of God's elect will he save? All of them. How many of them do you know who they are? You don't know who they are. All our job is to, is to connect the gospel with the elect. That's it. This is why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, if I could say it this way, stop being a thrill seeker and receive Christ. Stop being a discipline seeker and obey Christ and confidently be a soul seeker and introduce people to Christ. Do you realize That the mud that Jesus applied to the eyes, you have it. You own that mud, if I can put it that way. It is the word of God. It is the word of God which will be enlivened and empowered by the spirit of God. And we simply connect the word of God with those in need. So that they too might proclaim, I heard the voice of Jesus say. Isn't it good to have our blind eyes opened? Our Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness. We were the blind beggars sitting on the side of the road. We didn't even know Jesus was walking by. And yet, for those who know him, he stopped. He called to us. He healed our blind, wretched hearts. And he enabled us to see him to repent to know him, to love him, to obey him. And Lord, that's what we would pray for anyone here. And I'm fearful, Lord, for the longtime church member who perhaps has never actually been regenerated. I'm fearful for those who have learned the right words and the right stories to even write down a reasonably convincing testimony. I am fearful for those who have entered into the waters of baptism and proclaimed their faith in Christ publicly when in fact it's a lie and so Lord for those in particular that I've labeled the discipline seekers Lord I pray that you would reveal the wickedness of their heart and with fear and trepidation Lord help them to have their eyes opened so that they might see because how sad would it be Lord to spend an eternity in hell because of the pride of not wanting to admit I've been an unsaved church member. And so, Lord, open those eyes. We can't know who they are, but you do. And Lord, for the those who are continuing to just come as close as they can to Christ without actually receiving him, convert them, Lord. Convert them, we pray. And for all of us who possess the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have lived it, who have had it applied to our own hearts. I pray that you would bring, through prayer and through opportunity, you would bring the lost into our sphere of influence so that we might share the good news of Jesus Christ with them as well. And for all of us, Lord, might we do as the man born blind did and immediately obey Christ, no questions asked. Help us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Help us as wives to submit to and honor our husbands as unto the Lord. Help believing children, Lord, to obey their parents as to the Lord. Help those who work under the authority of others to obey that authority. Help us to be good neighbors. Help us to be the light of this world in the absence of Christ. We are the representatives of Christ on this earth. And so help us to fulfill the mandate of Matthew 5 to be the light in the world. We pray these things so that he might receive all the honor and all the glory as our sovereign God, our only wise God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.